Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I am joined by Indy Johar. Indy is an architect and co-founder of Zero Zero and most recently Dark Matter Studio Master at AA. Indy, on behalf of Zero Zero, has co-founded multiple social ventures from Impact Hub Westminster to Impact Hub Birmingham, along with working with large global multinationals and institutions to support their transitions to a positive systems economy. He has also co-led research projects such as the Compendium for the Civic Economy, while also supporting several Zero Zero explorations, experiments, including the wikihouse.cc and opendesk.cc. Indy is a non-executive director of Wikihouse Foundation and RIBA trustee and advisor to Mayor of London on Good Growth. Most recently, he has founded Dark Matter, a field laboratory focused on radically redesigning the bureaucratic and institutional infrastructure of our cities, regions, and towns for a more democratic, distributed great transition. Dark matter work with institutions around the world from the UNDP, McConnell, TFL, GLA, to Blocks Hub, which is in Copenhagen. He has taught, lectured at various institutions from the University of Bath, TU Berlin, the Architectural Association, University College London, Princeton, Harvard, MIT, and the New School. I want to take time to welcome Indy Johar to the deep dive. Indy, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. We had an opportunity to chat just a little bit before we started recording. And I started my 2021 with an episode with you, and I'm doing the same in 2022 because our conversations and episodes always have this incredibly long tail and people really resonate when we have a chance to be in conversation with one another. So I want to really thank you for being on the show, my first show of 2022. I, it's such an honor, Philip. Uh, it's such an honor to be here. It's such an honor to be part of these conversations. And I have to say, the feeling's completely mutual. Everyone who gets in touch with me says, oh my God, Philip's just amazing. Uh, so it's a real honor. And yeah, what a year. It has been an, an amazing year. You know, what I want to do is really start with giving you an opportunity to, you know, really reflect on the type of year that you feel you've had in your work in 2021. Again, in our conversations, we were kind of chatting and I said, you know, one of the things I've wrestled with is with all of the multiple crises that we're dealing with as a planet, as a people, to also have years that your work flourishes feels odd to me. So I want to give you an opportunity to reflect on the type of year you've had in in 2021. Oh, what a what a great question! It's been a well, it's been a great year, and actually, in many ways, informed me and actually and developed. I also think it's been a year of. I think it's it's also a year that is starting to highlight, and I think the latter part of the year started to highlight the scale of what we're up against and what the scale of the challenges. 
and not just the scale, but the kind of entrenched lock-ins that we face in that, in that process. And the lock and also the other thing is the risk of making the new out of from a landscape without any joy. I'm going to pick on that a little bit, which is that I think so much of what we are having to react to, I think, demands a sort of almost a rational solution-oriented mindset that I think one of the biggest things I worry about from last year is where is existential hope? Where is deep hope for all of humanity? And how do we operate in deep hope and not just operate through the lens of actually solving problems? And I think that's one of the risks that I've held from last year is that actually to be able to do this change, so the change is deeply humane. And by humane, I mean human, but also our relationship with the world is transformed. I think we we have to operate with deep hope and not operate through a mindset of zero-sum game frameworks, simple rational outcomes that reduce the joy of the end to just a mechanistic effect. And I think that's something that I think I've been very becoming more and more conscious of as the year has gone. I, I think the other thing I would say is that in a way, the what, the what problem, what we have to do is increasingly clear. I think the question is the how problem and the scale of the how problem that we face actually is, I think, what we're now starting to look into is what does the how really look like? And also the how is also where the incumbents and the lock-ins of historic issues start to become manifest. And, you know, one of the things that sort of becomes really clear to me is that there is increasingly a call for solidarity for transition. You know, we have to do this together. And I think one of the open questions that remains, and I've had this conversation with other people, was just that solidarity can't be built without some degree of truth and reconciliation of the past. So there's increasingly asked for solidarity without the reconciliation and the truthfulness of actually our path, past inequalities, injustices, and violences. And the work of building solidarity at a global level is fundamental to building the scale of the transformation, to address the scale of the transformation but it requires a truth and reconciliation moment. And that is, I think, where lock-ins happen. That's where the lock-ins are. Do people really want to do this together? And at the same time, I think the other part that I put in and then is that I think what I've increasingly worried about is that the level of, you know, we spoke last time that climate change is a symptom of a failure, not the failure itself. Well, actually, the problem is that we are in danger of addressing symptoms only. And addressing those symptoms only is like addressing the symptoms of a perpetual wounding machine, a machine that continues to hurt you and keep putting plasters on you. And the problem with that analogy and that pathway is that actually the philanthropic capital or the good money always addressing symptoms, not addressing the deep causes, is that it allows the wounding machine to get stronger, accumulate capital. So in the course of what has been an extraordinary few years, the wealth accumulation and concentration that we've seen when many people have become actually increasingly impoverished is, I think, a really good indicator, a really poignant indicator as to what the future heralds as we start to deal with it. And you're right. Emotionally, it's really interesting, right? So, yes, on one hand, it's been good as in we're getting to the depth of the problem, depth of the issues. But also, I think there are warnings in getting to the depth of the issues that we must bring our humanity into the depth of the issues. And maintaining humanity in, in an environment which has been very demanding psychologically, emotionally, relationally, as we actually, you know, have been distanced from each other. 
and the loss of that human to human relationship in many formats. I think that is required, that has demanded more of us. And that has been challenging uh, in that sense as well. So, yeah, here we sit. Yeah. I mean, I was taking notes as you were as you were sharing, because so much of what you're wrestling with and, and thinking about, it's it's clear that there's a few things going on. Right. And they are connected. And that kind of ties to the complexity of how these issues swirl around one another, because I did a presentation toward the end of the year at an event called 3% Conference. And the thesis of the presentation was the lies we tell ourselves. That was the name of the presentation. And one of the points I highlighted very early on is, you know, this mythology around we and who is the we in these conversations. And I, and I referenced this because I think it speaks to the issues of solidarity, the issues of truth and reconciliation. How do we move forward in a collective we when our we's are all starting from different places with different emotional and psychological past, different histories? And, you know, we can spend the entire conversation on this point, but I thought it was important to bring it up here because it is so tied, I think, to that deep hope and that joy that I want to get to next. But first, I want to get your thoughts on how we how we really tackle the we in so many of, of these conversations. It's such a kind of, you know, the best questions are the simple questions that actually uh, that go to the heart of the challenge. I think that's exactly right. So I increasingly COP is a kind of COP, whether it's COP26 or any of these things. These are all constructions of weeds or attempting to construct weeds. But an attempt to construct we without actually doing the reconciliation that's necessary to construct the we. And also, I think the reality is that there is a we that is emerging in conflict with the we that is fractured in the past. So I would say that increasingly it is evident that the tomorrow lives in a planetary scale we. We are massively interdependent. And whether it's COVID has shown that, whether it's our supply chains that have shown that, whether it's global finance that's shown that, whether it's our ecological services and kind of uh, have shown that, actually, whether it's the Sahara, the dirt, the dirt and dust from the Sahara, uh, fertilizing the Amazon rainforest, which actually provides massive carbon and also oxygen value to all of us in the world. These weeds are increasingly planetary. And then one of the things I would like to sort of bring forth is that we are increasingly recognizing, whether it's in logistics, whether it's in climate change, whether it's in plastic pollution, whether it's in finance, we're operating in a planetary we. But what I think is challenging is that that planetary we don't have the, the institutional consciousness or the institutional frameworks or even to actually build and operate that planetary we. And we're still operating at an economic level in a kind of competitive theory of we's which are competing against that reality. So there, there is something fundamental going on at that planetary scale that I think is really both important and critical. So I think we're seeing the emergence of a planetary consciousness whilst actually living in an old world of competing we's. And then what's really problematic, as I was sort of, as, as you were rightly hinting to, is that actually, how can we construct solidarity between communities which have been massively, massively sort of undermined, dismantled, destroyed, 
sort of and systematically sort of undermined, uh, whether it's indigenous communities in Canada or Turtle Island as a whole, you start to see that these are real issues. These are so how do we construct a solidarity of a transition without actually being able to address the reconciliation that's required to be able to build that? And I think this is one of the big fundamental challenges that we face. And it's not it's within our societies, it's also between our societies and at a planetary scale. And I think this may be the kind of key Fermi paradox for civilizations, that can you go from competing reeds to planetary reeds? And unless you can make that transition, I don't see how our civilization goes forth. And I, just to be a little bit more difficult about it even, I would add that one of the, I think, the biggest challenges is everyone talks about climate change. I think before climate change uh, destroys us, almost certainly, I would say that civil disorder and civil violence and breakdown of violence is much more likely to come in. So the construction of the we and the construction of an equitable planetary we, which is able to reconcile actually historic injustices, I think that's that's really one of the big projects of the 21st century. And the question is, do we how do we do that without it being misused, without it becoming a power structure which is centralized? all those things that are problematic. Because I don't think a planetary we is about a, a global government. I don't think a planetary we is about a centralized theory of uh, some people representing us as a planet. I think a planetary we is about actually distributed distributed agency, but actually planetary consciousness and, and recognizing our interdependence. It's a completely different thesis of a planetary we emerging. It's not through sort of a single government theory. So I think there's, and I know this time we've gone slightly philosophical, but I think this construction is really critical, but it sits on a base of deep reconciliation. I mean, philosophical is, is where, you know, I think we actually need to spend most of our time, you know, because it is, it is getting to the really deep, like human and living system experiences that make up so much of, of this planet. What I, what I refer to as like using love language, right? The language of like where we started, joy, yeah. you know, deep hope, like really pulling those things forward. That is um as as philosophical as as one can get, you know. But I, you know, I, I keep saying I'm gonna get to that and I and I keep pushing it out a little bit because yeah. I wanna I wanna track a little bit on the how and the lock-ins that are so part of the how we do this type of change work because it, it makes me think of the narratives and the predominant stories we have told ourselves, right? So kind of getting into the, the culture piece of this because sometimes, and, and this is just my estimation and I'm curious as to your thinking on it, when we find ourselves kind of wrestling with the how and we're dealing with those sort of lock-ins of systems, it, it sometimes seems to me that it comes down to some of the stories that we've told ourselves as to how we exist and live on this planet. For example, you mentioned moving from competitive we to a, a different type of we. And the, the story and element of competition, just using this as an example, is so rooted in these big culture stories, right? That we tell ourselves that we are, 
antagonistic by nature. We compete for resources as the quote-unquote natural way of the world, you know, kind of the Darwinian frame that is still so pervasive, even though mostly wrong, right? So I'm, I'm curious about how you think about tackling these pervasive culture stories as it pertains to breaking through some of these how pieces of making change. I think it's it's an absolutely core cool question. So I would say one of the biggest lock-ins that we have is language, the taxonomy of how we describe the world. And the second part of that is, is how that language is constructed into stories. We can talk about the lock-ins of capital, we can lock in lock-ins of capital invested, we can talk about the lock-ins of power pathways, all sorts of things. But actually, I think you're right. It's rooted in stories. And I think one of the biggest stories that I think, you know, you, you absolutely rightly put you know, sort of Darwinism as a kind of theory of how we organize the world. I think one of the biggest challenges I think we face, the transformation that we face, is that Darwinianism and all of that thinking was based on an idea of whether it's Cartesian thinking, object-subject thinking. These were all based on the idea of separation. So separating one from the other. And, and that separation, that classification, actually an individuation is a mechanism to allow us that separation, firstly, permits violence. Right? So once you can separate yourself from something, you can actually permit a violence, which we know was, unfortunately, the tactic used you know, in, in World War II and the racialization of communities before that, which was actually a theory. Racialization was a mechanism used to divide us and thereby actually permit a theory of violence and inhumanity. Now, that, that also was a mechanism of object-subject, a mechanization of work. All sorts of things happened off the back of that. Now, the challenge that we face is that increasingly, both from a scientific lens, but also from a problem lens, actually our entanglements are actually more and more the key feature. So the reality is it's increasingly clear. I am entangled, both in terms of my mind, but also through microbiomes, through food systems, through epigenetics. I'm entangled in space and time. I'm not even an individual. I'm a multitude of organisms that actually come together and uh, my sort of uh, gut biome being being uh, problematic, uh, sort of not well, will affect how I think, all sorts of things. So we are this emergent multitude of, of things, and we have a plurality of, uh, we don't have one identity, we don't one, we have a plurality, and we manifest through that. So it's really clear that, and whether you look at trees, they are something similar, the world around us is an entangled, we are entangled with the world, uh, DNA level as well. Now, what that entanglement means is that historically, the subject-object relationship allowed us to work in a theory of transactions. I would optimize what I want from the forest, and I would the forest for me is a is a piece of timber, right? So the reductionism of the forest to timber, and that was completely justified because the forest is what it is. I am me. I'm an individual, and I would do that. Whereas, actually, in an entangled worldview. And the externalities were irrelevant, right? The fact that the forest was providing food, biodiversity, water, cooling, also those were largely ignored. Whereas actually in an entangled world, what we realize is that everything is a co-beneficiary. So 
actually, my relationship with you is not just my relationship with you. My relationship with you is in recognition of the co, all the other people that are entangled with you. So my violence to you has a manifest effect on, on to other people around it. And simultaneously, this is a relationship, it's a mutual relationship. So what becomes really clear is in an entangled world, we have to move from single point optimization, but to mutualities of care. And care being a mechanism of actually how we move in an economy, as opposed to transaction and optimizing, single point optimizing, is I think fundamentally different. So, you know, the, the classic example is if you, um, you know, you don't sit there arguing with your child to say, right, you know, I, I, want, to, I want to get the maximum benefits out of you. It's not a relationship of optimization of benefits from children, right? It's not even when we provide work, do we say, what's the minimum amount of work we can do? We're in a different form of relationship, which is a relationship of mutuality and a relationship towards an abundance in that thesis of what the future could look like. And it's hard work, but it is a different form of relationship and it manifests different qualities. So increasingly, one of the things that's become clear to me is that actually we're seeing a fundamental shift, not only in recognition of our entanglement with the world but also our relationship with the world our agency in the world has to be operationalized not to optimizing toward myself through a transaction but to operating through care because i don't know what the spillover effects of my interactions are so how do we operate in care and that means that you have to operate in craft with each other and this is a mutuality and I think that, to me, has been really one of the fundamental things, because it, if you start to look at it through that worldview, you start to think about the worldview in, world in a different way. You see the forest as a self-sovereign thing to which you are in relationship with mutual care. Now, that's a psychological, philosophical psychological twist, but I think it starts to be resonant for a world in mass entanglement, and it requires a new behavior. Now, the challenge for us is that We've created the context. We've created, we weaponized the context for the world around us to the point that actually, you know, I think we spoke about it last time. We, we, we drive precarity into the world. We make us all precarious. What is it? Sort of, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's something like 40% of uh, Americans living with less than $400 um, and a month or so or six weeks to, to, to paycheck. So that precarity means that we create the psychology of, of fear, vulnerability, and also what would be, I would say, a net zero-sum game. So if I have nothing and you have something, it's about the redistribution of that. So we've created conditions, conditions for optimizing competition as the theory of organizing. And this is a macroeconomic context, but that maybe worked when it was about efficiency and known targets but it doesn't work in a world of discovery care creativity craft creativity is not a competition between people right it's it's not a it's not a competition it's it, creativity is an abundance it's an it's an infinite future that's possible so i think we're living in this moment of a deep transition and and a deep transition from this idea of you know this transactions and optimizing and ownership as a point of optimizing everything to a new theory of how do you live in care and living in care. What is a contract of care? You know, you and how do you construct that? How do you construct those frameworks? These become really critical, and these are new imaginations of the future. And my worry is we're still deploying all technology, whether it's smart contracts. We're still deploying smart contracts from a theory of transaction optimizing and trustlessness, as opposed to 
actually care and truth and truth sharing. Like I, I think there's a completely different modality. And I think that deep philosophical framework, and I use care as a kind of building block from care comes hope and other things and a deeper sense of actual existential hope in that sense. But but I think care for me is almost my word of 2022, actually. Of, and I think that philosophically can be used to transform our monetary system. Our monetary system is a theory of violence with centralized production of money and centralized return of money. It means that you're always extracting, tearing value out of the world. So how do you decentralize, distribute money production in a way that actually doesn't do that? And I think we're about to see some of those revolutions on the table. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from the, hesitate to say the midpoint of the pandemic, because I don't know where we are on the timeline of the pandemic. I think that varies depending on who you are, where you are um, geographically and, and all of those things. I think we've reached several midpoints, you know, if I had to think about from 2020 till now. But one of the things that that I highlighted very early on was that you know, this is a crisis of care. You know, if we're looking at the various breakdowns in the way in which the pandemic was handled, and again, the pandemic is a symptom of many other things. But as I look around all of these crises, I just see care at the at the root of it in so many different ways. Like our healthcare systems are not about caring for people they're about other things profit and and all of that so i i I love that you're highlighting that so much for this year and and even beyond it and it it gives me an opportunity finally as promised to get back to you know this this idea the deep hope and the joy that you've talked about and I've tried to make distinctions in language between happiness and joy and all these different words which are often used interchangeably and I'm and one of the things I've been wrestling with and it's a theory and so it's not going to be a perfectly formed idea is the the type of joy and deep hope that I think I think I'm hearing you discuss is a community-based, collective-based, solidarity-based joy and deep hope. And I want to contrast that a little bit to, again, these these other stories that were often told where the happiness, and I want to use that word specifically, is an individual happiness. It's almost and again, I'm going to apologize to folks who are who are engaged in these kind of spaces. It's almost like a therapy-based happiness of if I'm okay, you're okay. And and there's a lot of work around this from like the '60s and these transitions of hippies to other other things. So I'm kind of throwing a lot out there, but I'm curious about how you think about this sort of like faux positivity that is so much a part of kind of influencer culture and marketing culture as compared to what I think we're trying to get at, which is a more collective community-based joy and, and deep hope. Absolutely. I, I think, uh, yeah, so thank you so much for this question. And I think I think one of the things I wanted to preface or sort of this sort of conversation is that 
I'm not really talking about a kind of a quasi-moral thesis. I'm not talking about care from you must care. I'm actually thinking in a complex emergent world where actually entanglement is real and unknown implications of what we do is real, actually the operating model has to change in recognition of the world that we see. So this is not a a moral position. It's just a, okay, guys, the the idea of self-optimizing worked in a world that was perceptibly, from a Western perspective, empty. And and that idea of individuation and separation worked. And the same applies to this kind of theory of deep hope. I mean, when I, and there's some really brilliant writers for this stuff as well. and 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 I think, what would happen if I asked the question, you know, what does a thousand year hope look like? What does a hope look like that is a hundred year hope? Hope that thinks is that we've been living in a world which is, I think we're living in an age of war. This is an age of great war. The war is manifesting in every sense against the climate, against each other. And how do we move to a great peace? How do we move to a great peace? And I think that is a great transition for us. So there's a, there is a new project, a new human project of being what it means to be human and a new age of peace that has to be built, recognizing I don't think post-war we entered a new age of peace. What we entered was an age of peace in terms of armed armaments, maybe in some parts of the world. But actually, actually the violence that we generated against communities, against the nature, against our future citizens was massive. And I think this is a great turning in that sense of, of that capability of that of that transition. And it has to sit with a theory of deep hope, an existential hope, which is actually an offer not as a language, but actually as a as a context, as an invitation, as a condition making for existential hope for all of all of humanity, both individually together, both in space and time. And you know, I'm glad you brought up this notion of time because it was on my second page of notes. Um, so you, you're, you're like feeding me right into where I want to go with, with so many of these ideas as I was preparing for this conversation. And I wanted to put on the table this, this notion of time and how we seem to maintain mm-hmm. and live in different spatial relationships. And, and what I mean by that is you know, we, we've long had geological time, you know, this notion of change that's happening over many ages, over many thousands of years. And now due to climate crisis, we're seeing geological time come into human time, where shifts that took centuries and longer is, is now happening mm-hmm. in the time of our individual lifespans. And our lifespans also exist in, you know, what I'm calling like market time, this idea of reporting schedules and grant writing schedules and deadlines of asking for resources or getting resources or reporting. And and so how do we build ourselves and our humanity as we exist in all of these different spatial realities? So really time has become a kind of mass coordinating function and the coordination is done by who and the power that relies on the act of coordination, which has a theory of violence too, because it's not a, it's not contextual time. It's, it's sort of universal time as a theory. And you're right. 
say that we've reached an epoch where sort of geological time and human time are sort of interacting in a way that's unprecedented. I think for me, the biggest issue here is that we've lost our ability to think in a thousand years and to like it's in milliseconds and fractions of seconds. But actually, there is also a time that exists in a different cycle of value. And I, I think we've lost some of our capabilities. I think that's also, okay, if we really talk about this, I think what's also very clear is that it's lost for some of us, not lost for all of us. So, so the democracy, what's very clear is that many of us are having to live in, in a theory of precarity, not knowing what the future looks like weeks, days, months ahead. But then there are some of us, and we know that you know people in economic recessions, for example, you know they they we all make short term decisions, we make emotional decisions to fulfil our short term needs because of the precarity. Whereas those that have wealth are able to think longitudinally and in time. So I think one of the greatest disadvantages that we face is we face the 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 monopolisation of the future by the hands of the few, and the future is increasingly monopolised by the few. Because actually, it is they, it is only a few that have the capacity to think, act, and be agent into the future. So the future is in, is in the hand of monopolies and and oligarchs and those with wealth. It is not in the hand of societies as a whole, and not all of us as a whole. So the democratization of the future, I think, is a really key issue, and that requires the democratization of us being able to think long term, and that requires us to create a new economic theory, which actually recognizes that. All of society being able to think and act in the long term actually is a profound, profound transformation in our theory of markets, and, and it builds just markets because actually there is an incentive structure to look at outside those frameworks. And so, I think for me, the democratization of long termism is, I think, a really fundamental issue for democracy to construct it, and that I think is a much deeper, deeper question, and that requires us to also sense make ourselves in a different format. Of our relationship, not you know the sense make our relationship to the future. So you know the classic example: what's the best time to plant a tree right now? Will I be the benefit? Certainly not, you know, because tree matures in forty years. So how do I build a relationship with something that exists beyond me? How do I build a relationship into the future uh, in a way that is a is a new relationship with the future, a persistent relationship with the future, which isn't about optimizing things to my now, my present self. But actually, optimizing things as a handover of generations to generations of humanity and the planet around us. I think that is a deep philosophical question and philosophical and technical question. It's not just a philosophy; it's how we manifest that philosophy into our institutions and infrastructures and daily lives. That's the real challenge. The now, owned by a very few, will consume the future, and that's what we're seeing right now. Absolutely, and you know, I want to go back. Because this is like an urgent conversation, you know. When I when I read your work and think about these issues and and talk to other folks, I feel like an incredible urgency because of of that monopolization of the future. So, nice. I, I have these conflicting emotions, to be quite honest. And I've been I've been telling folks I've been working on this like ever never ending essay, which I'm actually going to publish tomorrow. So it's actually going to be out tomorrow finally for all the people who've heard me kind of wrestle with this over the past month is in it, I talk about cynicism as a partial piece of this kind of working. And 
how do we not fall victim to cynicism, which I find is in conflict with the joy that we've kind of talked about, but yet there's urgency to get things done. And when you talk about that monopolization of the future, sometimes when I fall into my own cynicisms, I feel like those windows of opportunity to create and build these new futures shrinks. You know, every time these oligarchs go into space, I feel like it's another shot over the bow of a, of a shrinking future. And I'm, I'm using that as an example. So I'm curious from your perspective, because you talked about, you know, we're, we're in a war and I've used that same analogy. How do I, how do I, or we, or us create narratives of urgency that convey the seriousness of the situation avoid cynicism and and also in tall order don't fall into analogies that could preempt to violence i know i just said a lot and i apologize for dumping all of that <laughs> because i'm just trying to use this as a little bit of a sounding board as i think through some of these sure. things as well like even when i do talks i try not to use like the military examples and the climbing a mountain, you know, all the things that we, <laughs> that we use. Um, and so I'm curious how you think through those things and to what extent, so you can help me think through them. No, no, I, well, I, I'm, I'm happy to contribute, but I think you, you're doing an extraordinary job in the first place. My worries right now are that climate change is a symptom. And there is a real risk that uh, disaster capitalism will enable climate change to be used as a weaponized force to drive the concentration of capital and power. That's a simple statement, but it's it's my actual genuine yeah, worry. It's a heavy one. Uh, because climate change will have differential effects around the world. Right. It, climate change will have differential effects around the world. I think the chances of it being used as a weaponized device is high in a quasi-military landscape kind of thesis. I think that will be used to accentuate disaster capitalism as return on capital. And we've seen that. COVID has seen the concentration of capital in that process. We've seen money move from those that were most vulnerable to those that are most rich. So I think that that process that we're underway is, I think, a process that I think I hold deep worry about. And also this doesn't deal with, that process also keeps us alive and linked to you know, a perpetual wounding machine. Climate change is one, biodiversity loss is next. It's a perpetual, there's almost a perpetual wounding machine which is doing damage and we're just trying to fix one damage at a time. And in that process, user damage to accumulation of climate change isn't about climate change in terms of the technologies, most of the technologies are there. They've been there for a while. Actually, there much more is a more fundamental transformation in our relationship to the world. And I think this is a much deeper philosophical, technical transformation. And this is not something special. We do these things every four to 500 years. You could argue in Tony and Enlightenment, 
was also a transformation in our conceptual frame of seeing the world and thereby manifested, whether it's classification logics, the idea of states as geographic boundaries, cartography, cartography, and all the way through to um, modern monetary systems, all sorts of economic theory erupted out of those things. So often, you know, I, I get deeply frustrated, as I'm sure you do, and I've, I enjoyed the fact you plug philosophy back in, is that actually, we, you know, there's almost a desire to not look there. And the reason there's a desire not to look there is because fundamentals that we built four or 500 years ago or actually are no longer working. They're regressive. And we need to recode those fundamentals. You know, the science of it is already there. Entanglements, quantum entanglements, all of epigenetics, all of that stuff, the science is there. What we haven't built is actually turning that science and policy into new ways of seeing, new ways of enacting, new institutions, new frameworks of how societies make decisions, how do we as societies move forward, and new recognition of those behaviors. So, it's a, And I think we haven't built any of that. So for me, what's very clear is that there's a risk of trying to fix the problems and the symptoms and not address the deep codes. And this is where I go back to, I, and I don't even think it's going to work, by the way. I don't even think you can, I think the scale of what we can unleash, there is almost a risk that we're about to unleash um, self-terminating forces, i.e. forces of symptom management, which actually become self-terminating. When you have a quarter of quarter of a, mil, a billion people on the move or half a billion people on the move by 2050 when you have a reality where i think most of those people will be living in informal encampments the largest growing urbanism is not urbanism that we see done by architects it's informal urbanism that we're seeing so we are living in an age of great transformation and the great transformation needs to sit on a root of a new way of being and existing and relating to the world and it's a reimagining of self right we have to reimagine what it means to be human and we have to recode our theory of what it means to be human, not as an agent of labor, not as a, a machine, but actually something more. And I think we have to recode our relationship with the world through a relationship of care, both in terms of space and in time. And that means recasting all of our institutional logics, recasting our theory of ownership. Is ownership an act of enslavement of one thing to your needs, which is what I would suggest it is? It's an act of servitude and enslavement of one thing to, to to our needs. So the, a piece of land becomes enslaved and to the needs of one person or one entity. Whereas actually we know the land will outlast that person. So we have to talk about a new theory of care and relationship. So I think this is a deep structural transformation. And I suppose that's where I would constantly push now more and more into saying that transition requires going deeper into the problem rather than just addressing the symptoms. And the risk of addressing the symptoms is I think we will we will just drive capital accumulation whilst letting the machine do what what it continues to do. Absolutely, I mean one of the one of the challenges is the resilience yeah. of of these stories. You know, I think one of the longer conversations we we had was yeah. you know I'm kind of dating our relationship here was probably 2011 2012 when I published a piece about stewardship versus ownership. Right. And this was mm. um, at the nascent stages of what was then called the sharing economy. You know, this was going to unlock all the all the value. And and there was um, skepticism. Let's put it that way again, use that word <laughs> um, skepticism on, on many of our parts. And 
I look at the existing way in which technology and whether we call it Web3 and NTFs and so many things that are that are promising, quote unquote, to unlock this this new way of being, I, I find it more of the same for a lot of the reasons that that you've so eloquently highlighted that when we are they are symptomatic of this ownership versus stewardship divide. You know, do we do we see the world in which we exist as one of finite relationships which are best framed through a market economy? Or do we see it as something different? You know, this promise that that you've that you've talked about of reimagining the way in which we are so deeply connected. And so I, I want you to reflect a little bit on that and the way in which we are we are still going through this stewardship versus ownership. And I'm sure there's other language that captures those terms. So I'm I'm not saying there's not other terms out there, but we'll we'll use those in, in lieu of, of many others. No, absolutely. And I think I mean, the, the unfortunate challenge, I think, as you rightly held out, is that the mindset and the mind frame and even the capital structures that are building much of these new technologies, they are captured by, from my perspective, and again, I don't claim to be the truth, but just a perspective, they're captured by a kind of hyper-neoliberalitarianism and a hyper-individualization individuation of the world. And that individuation is all about actually some idea that I exist in complete independence from the world. And I think that conceptual frame of agency being the sole preserve of the individual and meritocracy, all this language is locked into that. And I think we're building technologies off the back of that. So, you know, DiFi, fantastically interesting. But largely, it's a, most of DiFi stuff is really about a de- sort of addressing a kind of problem of the theory of the state and and the monopoly power of state. But actually, it's creating a new theory of violence in a different format. And largely, it's replicating the same mechanisms that have existed in through state institutional mechanisms uh, through different me- uh, through through technology in another format. It hasn't transcended the problem of what is a smart contract of care. I purposely use those words, and I know they are contradictory in the sense of can you contract care? I think you can. You can create the conditions for it. You can create the relationships for it. You can create mechanisms of pledges for it. But the question, what is the experience of constructing that? I don't think we're using technology to create a whole new relationship modalities, which is, I think, where we need to be going. And you're absolutely right that, in a way, they're still individuating a theory of ownership, fractional ownership, hyperfractional ownership in space and time, derivatives based on that. I think these are all modalities of of doing some of that. And, you know, so so let's use the dreaded Bitcoin word. So Bitcoin is is um is technically very interesting money. It's mm-hmm. technically sound, i.e. Uh, it can persist value in some fashion. But actually it's socially illegitimate in my view. Socially, it concentrates wealth. So the first coin that's printed had very little work done and actually generate a 
huge and it will continue to accelerate in value in accordance with the Bitcoin economy model. It will appreciate in value. It concentrates historic wealth massively in that sense. So actually what we are seeing is unearned value becoming massively amplified. Now that's not socially sound money, that's socially illegitimate money. And actually it also takes away what you know quantitative easing if done right is a redistribution mm-hmm. of value or shared accrued value so value of money is not just in the transaction value it's also in the operational value so the velocity of that money actually creates value most of the velocity effects of money in bitcoin accumulate into historic coin owners they don't accumulate in a wider sense of society and the distribution of that so i think i think and and I think it still perpetuates a kind of a exactly yeah I, I think it still perpetuates a model, modality which will concentrate capital and thereby will concentrate a, thereby it won't it's not it will concentrate capital but it also concentrate power and thereby concentrate violence through that power and I think concentrate so you know concentration of capital concentration of power concentration of control. And thereby, we have concentration of uh, the kind of implications of violence. These are natural pathways of those actives. And I think, you know, just to build a few few bits on this, I think, I think it's increasingly clear that we're living in a system which is now self-corrupted. So when you concentrate those things, actually, the system becomes corrupt because it has to in order to maintain control. So I, I do, I do agree with you that I think. The big challenges that we face are technological viewpoints are being constructed from a very, 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 very particular mindset. And that mindset is then accelerating technology and the benefits of that technology in a very particular way. And I think that's one of the big challenges and transformations that are possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and as you said, you know, getting to the to the root of things, you know, when I when I watch those worlds move, I see the same the same market driven transactions that I lived on a on a trading desk are exactly what I see in in that universe. You know, people can use all the language that they want ar- around creator economy and you know decentralization, and I see it as more entrenchment of the same. You know, if not worse. And and I think this this capacity to get to the root of things, to ask the question beyond the instrument itself to say, well, what's the ideology behind these things? Because, you know, we've thrown around the word philosophy quite a bit in this conversation, but I always want to get to the root of the thinking behind an idea, which sounds like, oh, the idea is the thing. But I'm like, no, there's a lot of structure behind so many of these ideas, you know, who are the people that came, that started to come up with this stuff and put it in a universe? What are their goals? What are their motivations beyond the instrument? You know, and when we're when we're talking about the the spatial relationships that we have, sometimes people don't want to feel burdened to to do that sort of work. But it seems to me, and I'm curious what you would think about this, that we have to uncover those deep roots in order to move forward, whether that's on a truth and reconciliation side of things, whether that's on a imagining new futures and where those things intersect. There has to be a digging, even when it's painful, into the root of things. 
Yeah, I, I would agree, and especially in a complex, non-linear world where it is those root beliefs that are almost the generative DNA of what that future will look like and how that instrument or activity or organization or people will react in context. And, and I don't even say the root is a truth. Sometimes you can build a root, and if you declare it and you socialize it, it builds a kind of accountability frame for you to become better as a being, right? So I think too often we see rules as, as impositions, as restrictions. But actually, sometimes rules can make you better, invite you to be a better being, invite you to actually be better. So I think we, we can also use these deep philosophical thinking or deep uh, discovery of those roots to, as a mechanism to make ourselves better and be able to act and react in a generative sense in fundamentally different ways. And I think that becomes really clear. And the decorative behaviors that we take with that, actually turning what are implicit ideas into explicit decorative ideas, allows us to build communities and operationalize decisions in radically different ways. So it's absolutely clear that I, I would absolutely agree with you. And I think that's really critical in the analysis of things is where's the intellectual root for this. And the intellectual root will almost certainly tell you the generative path that something will take. And also, not just the intellectual root, but also the capital root. So we're seeing so much venture capital and other things accumulate in DeFi, for example, in a very particular way. I think it has a very particular path in its value chain. And I think there's a really good question there. What does good money really look like? And how does good money really behave in the 21st century? And I think... It isn't just about having some KPIs. Good money operates in a fundamentally different way in that sense, and good resources need to operate in that way that are actually working to work, working to invest in a generative sense, not in a predictive sense. And too often, as soon as we talk about good money or any other preface, you say, well, let's define good. Let's see who, what that good looks like. Let's be able to measure it. And as soon as you do that, you kill the idea of operating in a generative world. So good, I think, is, is a is a theory that's rooted in how you want to think about the world and how you want to construct value and how you want to recognize externalities, how you want to make decisions, how you want to build accountability. And if we are, as we try to do in the course of this hour-long conversation, sort of saying there's a deep co-transformation required, which has a different way of looking into the future, and it's necessary to recognize we're operating in a planetary scale entanglement. What is the nature of that, that deep code thinking that Philip, you're pointing to that needs to be supported to be able to actually generate new classes of technologies and behavior and institutions and allocation mechanisms to operationalize into the world? And I think that is a real a resource philosophy and technology to stack. And how do resources, philosophies, and technologies intersect in new ways and actually have declarations of it? I personally find it deceitful I would almost go so far, is that many of the great technology companies sit with an underlying philosophy. It's just undeclared. And they just tell everyone else to say, just do it. You know, just do it. This is the doing. But actually, the doing is fundamentally rooted in a theory of value and how you perceive the world. Mm -hmm. And everything undeclared about that actually means that you are undeclared in your intentions and the malformations that you're making in the world. 
So I think there is a coherence between the resources, the philosophy, and the technology building. And that I think we need to be more straightforward about. And that is more relevant now than ever before, I would argue, because we live in an age of a great turning, a great transition. And that great transition means that actually we need we are living in an age of philosopher makers, as Polini would say, living in an age of philosopher makers. And the philosophy and the making is a fundamentally coexistent to be able to actually discover a new path into the future. And it can't be reduced to just making, because actually we don't know. And we don't know what the world will look like. And just to put that don't know onto the table, really manifestly, you know, if we're going to live in one and a half degrees, we're going to have to live with buying two pieces of clothing a year. Two pieces. And I'm just using that as an indicator, nothing more. Just as an indicator for the world that you and I see around us, most of it now is a zombie world. It's the living dead. It doesn't really exist. It just keeps working because we're printing enough money and keeping everything going. But the reality is pretty much everything around us is non-real and non-viable into the future. So if it's just uh, use clothes as an example, if you're only able to buy two pieces of clothing a year, your relationship with clothing becomes fundamentally different. Your relationship and utility of clothing becomes fundamentally different. Your care of clothing becomes fundamentally different. The business model of clothing becomes fundamentally different. And then you take that and you apply that to everything else. And that's why I think because the economic models and the economies and the incentives haven't been set yet for the next age, and they're being emergently discovered, I think we need philosopher makers to operate and to be able to discover this, these, new, these new ways of being, existing, relating to the world, and set some of those shared frameworks. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to, I have one final segment, which is the drop. Every time I, I do the show, I always leave out um, off the dome because I want us to spend most of our time in conversation with one another. And so before I get to the drop where we give recommendations on, on what listeners could be checking out, it doesn't need to be anything too deep. I, I want to, we started the conversation kind of looking at the year that passed, the 2021 year. And we are now one, three weeks into 2022. Um, you know, this episode is, like I said, the first one that I'm releasing of the year. And I'm curious with the knowing that the emerging is there, we're figuring it out, we're we're deeply engaged in, in care and joy and, you know, these micro doses of hope or, or deep hope rather. What are you... You kind of told us what you're concerned about in, in 2022. What would be something where you feel that deep hope for for 2022 and beyond? You know, we're not going to limit ourselves to a year, but I'll frame it in a year and then I'll get to the drop. So I'm giving you that one one final shot to kind of give us some deep hope going into the year. So I think 2022 for me is about the big how. How do we do these transitions? How do you build? And finance, whether it's the tree canopy of a whole city, or whether it's the mental health of a whole city, or whether it's the whole re city retrofit, or whether it's actually building new theory of affordable housing, where actually houses are self-owning and are tend towards being near free, like the free housework that we're doing, or whether it's actually about reimagining the nature of an organization for which is focused on human discovery or whether it's about actually how do you do city trans transitions, city transitions into net zero, 
because those city transitions aren't about the municipality. They're about actually a movement of actors working together with mass democracy to support a transition. How do you construct the institutions and the institutional frameworks to do that? What does a climate city contract signed by millions of people in a city and a pledging mechanism, which is transparent, how do we build these new institutions to be able to do these transitions? So I think for me, and in those, in those, every one of those things, there are complex, rich questions. So for example, how do you build a tranny, uh, how do you invest $400 million into making a canopy of a, of a tree canopy of a city without actually making it instrumentalized, without making it, without only being able to look at uh, one aspect. So for example, how do you deal with flooding? How do you deal with heat island? How do you deal with health? How do you also deal with community capital and, and community, uh, community wealth development? So if you look at the plural benefits of that tree canopy, which is more than just carbon, actually, how do you build an, an economic model which recognizes this generative capacity of that tree canopy, but also help communities build that as an emergent form of infrastructure, not centrally driven by capital? So how do you really turn the tables of how we build these civic infrastructures? So, and in that is there is a price. How do we price that value? How do we become transparent around that? How do you build institutions? How do trees, you know, become self-sovereign? How do you build a new relationship of care with these trees? So in these things are really rich, important questions. And for me, 2022 and beyond is really about getting into these deep questions and these structural questions and being able to make templates, be able to build public conversations. And this goes all the way through to how does an organization like DM, you know, do pay? currently the highest and the lowest is two to one and how do we build justice in that how do we build care into an organization which recognizes all sorts of different working patterns and needs so and i think if we're going to build a discover if we're going to build an organization which is able just builds the time capacity and care for people to discover and to live on the precarity we have to create the conditions actually of those safe and secure spaces for people to do that work and how do we do that in building open learning and not be focused on a control-based organization to build a learning organization? So for me, 2022 and onwards is really about more than just the stories of the future, but actually building the big hows. And the big hows are not necessarily one how, but actually hows that can be shared, used, replicated, iterated, forked, versioned. And building that movement, I think, is really critical, a movement of doing the how. And I think the scale of change is on the table. The scale of need is on the table. Um, and I think that's, I think for me, one of the big challenges of 2022 and really building that, building into that. Awesome. Awesome. I, I couldn't have asked for anything, anything better than that summation because it is, it is real, it's, it's deep and it, it's going to require uh, all of our, our work and attention and, and all of our joy. So thanks so much for sharing that with all of us. You know, as I, as promised, final segment of the show, which is the drop. And I have a couple of, of drops. So I'm going to go first because mine are really quick. And despite the heaviness or what I would say is I actually feel very light about this conversation, even though it's dealing with very serious things, I'm always encouraged when I can be in deep conversation with those who are also about change and, and understand the enormity of what we face, but also the enormity of the promise if we all get this collectively right, right? So 
my two drops are um, a show on Amazon Prime, which actually ran about three seasons, called Red Oaks, which deals with a a guy working in a country club in the eighties. But it's a it's a really interesting show. It's a fun watch. It's not too heavy, and it didn't get a lot of buzz when it was on, but. I kind of watched it retroactively over the over the holiday season and, and actually really enjoyed it. So Red Oaks on Amazon Prime. And then my other drop is a Korean crime drama called My Name, which I just finished. And again, super entertaining. I'm really into streaming shows from, from all over the world globally. I love seeing how different countries and regions put their entertainment together. It kind of gives me a snapshot into their culture to a certain perspective. And um, my name, again, Korean crime crime show, but really, really good. And so those are my my two drops. Um, great drops. Um, so I suppose my contribution would be a film, which uh, the film would be The Children, Children of Men, which I think is a really interesting film. And I won't do a spoiler on it, but it is a beautifully rich film talking about the scale of the kind of challenge we're in the middle of. It does it very obliquely. Uh, it's a science fiction, but I think it's very eloquently done uh, by, I think, Brazilian filmmaker as well. So fantastic, worth watching. It's available on various platforms I won't name it. And the the book I would put down is David Graeber's book on the dawn of everything, which I think is an extraordinary piece of work, which sort of goes through making uh, an anthropologically centric view of history and starts to debunk many of the myths of state, many of the myths of civilization that have been wound into our heads like the role of kings and queens and actually centralized power and, and violence and the authority of violence and various other things. I think he debunks them beautifully and creates hope. And I think a deep hope for civilization that sits outside the kind of uh, the, the, uh, an idea of civilization that generally sits outside the monopoly of violence. And too much of our theory of civilization is constructed in the boundary of a monopoly of violence. And I think it creates deep hope around that, about in history, how we've constructed that and what that could mean. So those are my two drops for, for this year. It's such a pleasure and honor to be here with you, Philip. It's such genuine. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Those are those are great drops. And, and actually, I'm going to put into the universe. I've been trying to, well, trying. I haven't tried yet, but I wrote a note to myself that I actually want to talk to David Graeber's co-author, for that book on the show. You know, David unfortunately passed. So this book has been been published after his passing in collaboration with another gentleman. And I would love to have him on the show to represent this work and this book because it's a book that that I haven't picked up as yet, but it's on my list and it's one that I've seen many people talk about and reflect on. So, you know, I'm going to put that into universe right now. And so, Indy, this has been as usual, fantastic conversation. I, my listeners are going to be really excited to see that you're joining me again at the at the kickoff another season of of the deep dive. So I want to again thank you for being on the show and appreciate all all your work and your fortitude and your intelligence and your deep care. It's my honor to be here and thank you for holding these conversations and thank you for holding all the other amazing conversations. Frankly, I think you hold you're holding some amazing spaces and I think 
let's not underestimate the work that is done, Philip, because I think what you do is not only do you create the framework for us to have these conversations, but you also create the framework for actually a new language to emerge amongst us all and also the capacity to see the world differently. And that is an extraordinary gift that you're giving us all. So I want to thank you. Oh, brother, um, thank you so much. That means everything to me. Um, you're one of my favorite people. And again, thanks thanks for being on the show. I appreciate it. It's an absolute pleasure. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.